0: Welcome everyone to a Deck Hockey focused special presentation, the 50-year history of organized street deck and ball hockey.
1: Welcome to the fifth and final installment, the 2010s, the modern game. Scott walks us through the state of the game.
2: So the twenty tens to me to steal uh, you know a quote from George Tarantino is the the first real ball hockey generation. You know, deck hockey was, you know, still alive. You know, Lemonster nationals and canyams, especially in the early 2010s, you know, was still very, very deep with, you know, all the Massachusetts teams, you know, with the four, you know, dominant Lemonster teams that they had, you know, the Boston teams, you know, the the central mass teams, and then you had all the New Jersey and Pennsylvania teams still traveling up. And it was a very big deal to still win you know nationals and can ams the rams were still alive and, and thriving you know the americans were just on the scene arsenal was just coming up the saints were just coming up um so deck hockey was still alive um but ball hockey had started to take you know front and center uh you, you saw harrisburg you know which was the de facto u.s You know, ball hockey championships, you saw North Americans, which was, you know, at that time, the Super Bowl that had, you know, be all, end all, be all, um, you know, which the gods, you know, dominated through the, the 2010s. And I think the the Blackhawks, you know, pretty much dominated Harrisburg, especially in the early 2010s. But those were the 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 big, big tournaments, you know, that you had to go to. And, you know, we had those probably four you know, major tournaments with the two lemonsters at the early 2010s, but then it, it started to shift towards the mid 2010s and you had clash of the Titans pop up from ball in Canada, which a bunch of us teams traveled to the gods, you know, were able to win it twice. Fusion was always a player in that as well. And uh, then you had the club championships, which Corey put together in 2019 and was just a, a fabulous event dedicated to obviously the, the top teams in the country. So now you had all these you know major teams really focusing you know on ball hockey. And I think you know one of the things which was the catalyst to that in addition to the the tournaments I just mentioned was the the world stage. And you had the 06 junior team, junior national team that won gold. You had the 009 men's team you know w- which we'll, we'll touch on later. That uh, you know was the first team and to to beat Canada, you know when they were in their prime, winning you know world championships back to back, and I think that was a catalyst along with you know cool hockey coming about to then lead to us really caring about the national teams and, and seeing them on the national stage and, you know, leading to these, you know, you know, these world organizations with, you know, USA, you know, First Ashy and then, you know, USA Ball Hockey and then, you know, USA USDHF also doing their thing with the WBHF events where, you know, people were playing ball hockey in the international stage. So if you wanted to keep up and you enjoyed watching that, you wanted to play it as well. So, you know, I think people started to put more focus changing leagues from deck hockey to ball hockey and, and uh, changing the major tournaments um outside of leminster you know to to be ball hockey and and you saw that throughout the 2010s Um, i think people started to unite um through the country and the sport and start to really unify Um, and i think that led towards the end of the 2010s where we are now um, you know with usa ball hockey forming and and really trying to legitimize our sport as as we move forward and connect kind of this whole country And then I think the last piece that really stood out to me for the 2010s was, you know, technology. I mean, you've got, um, you know, Joey Delgado with, you know, MVP, you know, putting all the stuff, you know, online and all these videos, you have live streams popping up. You got Terry Milby who does a fantastic job capturing, you know, these live action shots with all these pictures and, you know, really giving back to the sport so that, you know, we have something that we can look back on and showing us playing. And then, you know, what I'm on right now with the deck hockey focus guys of, you know, putting podcasts and, and, putting a name and a face and a story um, to our sport and kind of connect all these things and then just social media in general you got Facebook and Instagram and you see all these teams on it and all these tournaments doing all these great things and it's connecting people and you know you're seeing people from different areas connect and you know maybe in a little bit of a rivalry and even some of the guys from the 80s and 90s and 2000s that maybe hated each other connecting a little bit and talking about you know their their story and their time and you know maybe connecting a little bit more than they had so in the past I know the old timers will tell you that you know this took a little bit away from the sport as you know the as the you know people the top players connected on the world stage and connected on social media the drop dead knock them out rivalries of the 90s took a step back. I still think there's competitiveness, but people don't hate each other as much as they do in, um, you know, say the the 90s, and you definitely lost a little aspect of that, but I think it's worth it for the growth of our sport to connect these people, um, you know, nationally, um, at the international level, um, connect all these leagues and all these people together. And uh, I'm very fortunate, you know, enough to be a part of, you know, this community in the 2010s. And, uh, you know, I'm excited for, you know, the future, you know, and where it goes.
0: As the game grew into the 2010s, major tournaments fueled the sport.
3: I think each tournament kind of had its own, you know, pluses and minuses. I personally, I always loved Georgia's tournaments it's just because early on, it was a lot of just, it was like the best US teams. So you knew you kind of came out of that, whoever was coming out of that that year, they were the top dog. But then you go to the North Americans, and once you started getting in a lot of all the Canadian teams, that's when. It, especially when i was you know early on I kind of opened my eyes to like you know a completely different style of hockey kind of like what cory touched on where you know uh, you know i know a lot of guys like we never had the structure that kind of cory brought to his team so we would try to just run and gun and yeah we could do that with the lower teams but you, you start getting run over by some of these high caliber teams so um I mean, and then I love, I always loved, I mean, I started going up to Lemster back again, trying to get a Jersey team going up in those early 2000, uh, 2010s, just because I grew up going to them from when I was in the Penguins, Beavers, cadets. I, I, it was always, that was like, that was the Super Bowl hockey tournament growing up. So I was, I was always trying to just get, you know, a high, like, like, you know, some of you guys do now, just a hodgepodge of guys trying to get up there kind of how I started the Supreme because I didn't want to bring the gamblers up because it wasn't like our true team. So it'd be like, I'm grabbing guys. All right, we got 15, let's go up. But I mean, it just, each tournament just brought, like you say, it was a different, it had, a, it had definitely its pluses and minuses. but
4: I think that's a very good, you know, d-
2: description between the two is, you know, ob- obviously separating deck hockey and ball hockey. But to me, Harrisburg, obviously, you know, primarily was American teams, So we all played a very similar style. So you, you went up there and you kind of really just smashed each other in every single game um, you know, North Americans in, and, and this is why I, I think the early part of the decade was, was very interesting is you had, you know, three, you know, if you want to put both Leominsters in kind of the same three, very distinctly different styles in each tournament where, you know, deck hockey is kind of its own piece. It's played outdoor, you know, pretty much 75% of the time I play in Leominster for some reason it rains. Um, you know, you could drive past Leominster and it will stop raining and turn back around and it will be raining right in Leominster. But, um, to me, that was always – you played kind of the conditions. And then North Americans, you throw the Canadians in it. It's a whole, you know, different type of wrenches. You know, you've got to adapt to all these different styles. And to me, that was entertaining as well because, um, you know, you had so many different, unique, different abilities and and style of play. And um, I think we were very similar to you guys where we just – put our head down and, you know, keep running into a wall. And, and, <laughs> and looks- we were ho- ho- hoping it would work, but it, unfortunately it didn't. And, uh, you know, I think that's why, you know, Cor- Corey had a little bit better of a strategy, yeah. I, I think, than all of us, and obviously some great players as, as well. But uh, yeah. very unique and, 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 and interesting to all those. And I think that made it a very um, pleasurable experience, I think, from how you were organizing your teams at the early part of the decade. For me, it was, all right, let's go to these four. And, uh, you know, I certainly love – like I said, I loved Corey's – club championships and i loved clash um but now as you start getting into more tournaments you've got to kind of pick and choose you know how you're going to set these up you know unfortunately you know it's hard to go to all these tournaments with a full squad so you're kind of playing everything out but back then it was almost like the three or four different majors and i think it made it uh you know obviously very unique
4: yeah you know with the 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 big difference to me about ball hockey and deck hockey is if you walk in these times right now, if you walk into a ball hockey tournament without a track team in America, you probably can't win. I mean, that's just the way it is now. A uh, very different game than deck hockey. Uh, and and when you were talking about the, uh, you know, playing against the Canadian teams and North Americans and how different it was, I remember talking to the coach of the Metro Rangers and I was like, You know, you guys are so distinct. It's so weird playing against you guys. It's so hard to figure out. And he said, you know, we go through the same thing with you guys. (laughs) Like, it's an adjustment for them, too, because we're just, uh, you know, very different style of play in America.
5: Yeah, and if I could piggyback on that, too, I think one of the – I've always said that the center line offsides, 5-on-5 deck hockey, something we all grew up playing, Lemonster – mecca say it all the time the atmosphere there was incredible we used to take kids up there for cadet just the people that were there watching the games and their love and their passion for the sport you got the grills going you just got the history around you you can feel the aura but I think that it's such a disciplined game there are so many rules and invested in that game that um, take away a lot of the freelance part of it like you know you can't bring your stick above your shoulders or it's a penalty you can't catch in one step you can't hand pass in the defensive zone and for that it creates you, it turns you into a very very disciplined hockey player. At least it should if you're playing the game the right way. It should turn you into a very disciplined hockey player. That way when you do make that transformation like we all had to do around the 2010-11 era, then you hopefully can now add some of the ice hockey components to the rules of ball hockey to your repertoire. And if you can make that adjustment, maybe even those who played ice hockey in the past, and it's guys like Joe Powell, Ryan Jones, those are the guys that ice hockey background, college ice hockey background, they're the ones that started talking about you know, one, two, two, four checks and two, one, two, four checks. I mean, I learned from a lot of those guys as well. So um, I think if you can bring over that discipline aspect of it, and I'll even throw three-on-three in there because three-on-three is such an element of a game. They call it deck hockey too. But you learn a lot about you as an individual player. I know Clarkie and, and, and I know Mox not here, but Shaq, they can tell you, you learn so much about yourself as an individual and how to play defensively and how to possess the mm-hmm. ball. So mix them all together. I think ball hockey kind of brings them all together just because it is very close to – the highest level of competition now. And I think that's why it has caught on. But, yeah, Dak, you can't – I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the discipline that it instills in you as a player and and as a teammate.
4: That's a good call.
2: George, now, for guys who are maybe going to watch this who played in, you know, the, you know, 90s or even the early 2000s, um, how would you say to them this game now that we see in the 2010s compares to maybe the game that, you know, they played in the 90s?
4: um it's the game today is more athletic uh on the big rink and it is refereed a little differently uh the game in the 90s was rougher it was meaner rougher uh more kind of uh you needed like a a bob probert on your team and now you need a track team i mean if you go out there on the big rink and you don't have a guy who's prepared to play it's going to show uh, it's going to show he's going to be a weak spot on that big rink. Uh, that is the biggest difference. Getting used to the offside rules uh, isn't that hard. I don't think it would take a team very long. Uh, but but you really have to build a team differently. Um, the way the game is refereed is different too. It's a, ball hockey is just refereed to let more physical play go. So that's uh, some big differences, I think.
3: Yeah, kind of like what George said. Like I, was, I came up. Started playing early 2000s, mid 2000s, kind of right towards the end of the era of like where the Long Island teams would come and just beat you down. The you know, Boston Stars, all, a lot more physical, like where yeah. I would say somebody like my brother, I'd be like, you'd never be able to compete back then. Where now, you know, he's a star player just because like, like George says, you just you, it's so much more speed now. You know, yeah, those first couple of years I, you know, when I started playing men's when I was 18 or like that, you would just, you know, you play Long Island and you would just get beat down all game. Younger kids yeah, you just couldn't do it.
4: Yeah, you're you're trapped out there on that little rink uh with these bigger guys that are, are real physical. Uh it's very different than um than what you can get away with on a ball hockey rink. There's just I mean, you could just flat out run away from people on a on a big ball hockey rink.
1: In a decade focused on ball hockey, nobody dominated more than the Pittsburgh gods.
5: Um, I think that in any sport, you just have to get lucky at times and get the right matchups. And I think we've been fortunate enough to have things work out in our favor when it comes to not just scheduling, but how you know, the ball really bounces on Sunday for you, um, whether it be a couple calls. But, you know, we put ourselves in that position by trying to play good, smart, clean hockey and work hard and outwork the other. But I think everyone goes out there to try to work hard um you know I I look at other teams that just struggled against Canadian teams and they couldn't get over the Canadian hump um while we actually enjoyed playing against Canadian teams it seemed like our style our style hockey they didn't like to go against too much it wasn't a run and gun it was more of a slow the pace down and try to play a trap against them at times and force them to dump and frustrate them and they don't like to do that and I think when you get those kind of matchups on a Sunday um plays into your favor a little bit and so for us I really don't know. I don't, I don't know if there is a secret or anything like that. I think it's just that alone. Work at, work hard, um, show up, be be fortunate enough to have the roster that you can put together. And the guys come, they play, they prepare leading up to it, whether it's with their bodies or, you know, just playing a lot of hockey so they're not rusty come the end of March, um, whether it be on Sunday or, or, or if they are playing in leagues. So um, I, I think we do consider – we like the size of the rink not going to lie to you, I think the Philly size of the rink helps us, plays in our favor too. Um, so it could be a lot of intangibles, but um, all in all, I think we're just, you know, pretty blessed to be where we are right now and hope to keep it going.
6: Who are the gods? <laughs>
5: uh, the gods, Jesus.
6: Uh, no, I never thought anybody would be that successful, um, especially with uh, how the New Jersey teams were panning out. And there were some really good, young uh, teams coming out of Massachusetts and of course Canada uh, starts with their leadership, their coach, you know, their whole system. They're uh, they're basically a a company. (laughs) He runs it like a company and there's, there's rules and there's sacrifices that you have to make. And if you don't make those sacrifices, you don't make that team. So he's made it to the point where the pride of being on that team is worth the sacrifices. And you see that with the youth, 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 youth leagues they have in that area. Everybody wants to be a god um, because they're very successful. But it's pretty
1: much it starts with, with the coach, Corey. The Pittsburgh Gods and Limitster Blackhawks rivalry defined the sport in the early 2010s. Corey and Bobby reflect on the experience.
5: Yeah, I, I remember saying it was, uh, it, it's funny to think back because um, as, as intense those games as those games were, And Bobby will tell you the number of one goal games we had against each other. They were always just clean. We remember them. I just remember being clean hockey games. There wasn't a lot of dirty play. There weren't a lot of fights. There weren't people taking, you know, liberties on others or even a lot of trash talk going on. There were just good mutual respect hockey games. And I think a lot of that is credit to the guys growing up playing against each other from the junior ranks all the way up. And then eventually, I think it was back in 2008, the majority of our guys – you know, join forces with the Bobbies and the Hildos and the Cool cores of the World on Team USA. And as you know, Scott, when you play on Team USA, you, you build a bond like no other, um, especially if you go through some highs with getting a chance to medal. And I, I think that that's where a lot of that mutual respect came from. But specifically those Harrisburg tournaments, the Super Bowl by that George Tarantino runs, uh, he does a great job and, and they own that Harrisburg tournament. They own that location. That was their town. That was their rink. Um, even after you know good friend Tyson passed away um, I just remember them having even more reason to go out there and perform and it was it was hard to beat them they were a juggernaut and they were so offensively dominant um, I I, there aren't too many whole groups just that dominant the way Cody can score goals the way Bobby made plays and other guys just chipping in from Levesque and Nick Capone who I'll talk about in a second but you know they they just they dominated they dominated every aspect of the offensive zone didn't like to work too much in the defensive zone but good luck getting them there, you know, because they just were so good at possession and we get leads on you. And they, for a lot of those games, there was no looking back for them when they were playing against other teams. And for us, um, it was always a grind. Um, and we weren't like that at all. We were a defensive hockey team. Hell anyone who follows and knows John Rethage knows he probably won us more games than we even had business being involved in. And because of that, um, I think even those games were one goal games and probably shouldn't have been uh, because of how great Johnny was and how dominant he was. And, and we were two opposite, we were two polar opposite teams, and and when you see teams like that battle it out on on any kind of like it could be a football game, right? You see two opposite opposite you know teams attract, and it just causes for really good um, daytime drama. I thought there was great hockey for us and great memories. Um, they made us work harder specifically. I remember coming back and having to work on faceoffs just because guys like Nick were so dominant. He was amazing. He was such an underrated player. He was so dominant in the offensive zone. He's so great in the faceoff circle, and they would win possession and man some of the goals they would score off the face-offs were just well set plays that you know they don't practice but they they just hocked it up right before the face-off was drawn and boom put it in and um you know we had to we had to get better and we're still not that good in the face-off zone but or in the face-off dot but um they made us have to improve they pushed us to be harder we had to step our game up we you know t- tournament after tournament especially when they had roca and net for them um and so there's a lot of great games they definitely own us when it comes to overall record and our record against them is not that good but um the memories are great for that. I appreciate.
7: Uh, yeah. Like we were just, uh, we all pretty much got along in the early years, later years was a little different, but uh, it was easy to mesh. You know, we, I mean, we wouldn't like party crazy Saturday, but like Sunday we'd be out till the end of um, till the morning pretty much. But uh, <laughs> the, the games themselves, I'm pretty sure every game was like every game was decided by a goal. And there was either the game winner or the game tie would come in the last two minutes of the game. Every single yep. one. There was yep. either a game winner or a game tie. And then a couple of them went to overtime. And the only time I think there wasn't a uh, like there wasn't a major goal in the last couple minutes was when the gods beat us, one nothing. And that was, in my opinion, I thought that was, I don't think we deserved to win every game we played against them. And the time that they knocked us off our horse, I thought we really deserved that win. And it just, I mean, that's hockey though, you know, we got away with a few early and they got the, they got the final one though,
8: but it was crazy. Like
7: every, like every single game, game yeah. tie, game winner, last minute or overtime, last two minutes or overtime, Yeah, best games to be a part of.
0: The country has certainly shifted to ball hockey in recent years, but it's important we not forget our deck hockey origins.
2: At the beginning of the decade, deck hockey is still going strong in Leominster. They're running their two annual tournaments, Nationals and Can-Ams. And you still have some great teams. The Rams, as always, for the past you know 40, 50 years. The Boston Stars, who were their rivals in the, the 2000s and then later became the Boston Saints. Penhills Arsenal is coming up. The Quebec teams who love deck hockey are still coming down. And you probably have the new dominant deck hockey team in the Leominster Americans who you know, are basically unbeatable through the second half of the decade. As the sport switches to ball hockey internationally and now nationally with USA ball hockey, I think it's important for all of us to still make the annual trip to, you know, the Mecca of our sport in Leominster. There's still an aura there. And just like Wimbledon and tennis played on grass, I think there's a place always in our sport for deck hockey, a small rink outside that brings us back to our youth. So I hope teams continue to play, not just the the local teams and continue to travel there and keep that sport alive to pay tribute.
1: Cool hockey events is the largest provider of tournaments in the country. Jason and JJ continue Jamie's vision.
9: Cool hockey events was started before me. Uh, you know, it was Jamie Cook that you mentioned before and, and JJ here and and uh, they had, you know, two events, the North American Championships, you know, and the Beach Bash. And Cool Hockey started with the Beach Bash. It was Jamie Cook starting to run a tournament, you know, to have a good time and, and get another event, get something down down this area, uh, you know, kind of uh, outside of Levinster or New York uh, and, and get, you know, a fun time tournament. With North Americans starting up with something that Jamie and JJ, you know, put together to, to bring competition to the uh, competitive tournament to the Philadelphia area and move indoors, move more towards – that ball hockey uh, rule book versus deck hockey. Uh, When I came on, I think in uh, 2006 or seven, you know, we, Jamie and JJ came to me about opening up a uh, women's tournament, which was the Holiday Bash. Uh, And that was my first tournament ever. It was actually uh, 14 years ago this December, uh, 15 years ago this December, I'm sorry, when my my son was born. Um, It was our first, my first tournament. Uh, That quickly, you know, moved into two events that were, again, were geared towards women, uh, or, or lower men's divisions and that was something else that JJ and Jamie kind of brought like they wanted to get something that was geared more towards the lower divisions of hockey most of the tournaments that were around you know uh, in the 90s and, and early 2000s were a B level stuff and we wanted to get something into like the C and the D levels um, so when Jamie was getting ready to retire JJ and I got together and JJ asked me to come in and, and kind of be his partner him the co cool events and we brought all four of the tournaments What we do now is I think we have uh, 10 or 11 weekends a year now. Some of the events like the North Americans are split into three weekends, holiday bash is two, beach bash is two, Um, just to kind of allow as many of the teams in different divisions want to get in there. And we really always and only ever pushed ball hockey rules. Um, Moving to the indoor rinks years ago, moving to the bigger rinks, uh, it just really kind of made sense. Uh, And then after we got involved kind of like 2009 when JJ was the head coach of the women's team and I was assistant coach, we saw the international game up, up close firsthand. And we decided that we really wanted to kind of push everything we did to kind of model that, you know, if you're going to play the game, you know, from the kid all the way up to you know an old man uh, you might as well play it like they're playing an international, just in case you're ever lucky enough, you know, to get out to that level. Uh, and while our events are geared towards, you know, international level play um, we wanted to kind of model, you know, the rules that we already had and a couple of the rules that they had and kind of model it together. And that's, kind of where we stuck with ball hockey, like you said, and, uh, and I've only ever really done that. The only event we ever run that's not full ball hockey rules is the beach fashion, only because the rink is very, very small. It would be something like the guys from Iowa would be used to playing on. Um, so we do a center off offsides there just to kind of make it a little easier.
6: Yeah, well, the, you know, regardless of what town level you are, whether you're a D-League player or an A-League player, each player has a competitiveness to them that they want to compete. Now, the problem is when you put a league team versus an a league team, you know, it becomes un- unfun and not very competitive. So if you're able to put teams versus each other of the same skill set, it makes the games more competitive, more enjoyable, and it keeps them in the tournament circuit. They want to they keep going. And once you find the team that goes from the D, then goes up to the C, and finally they get up to the B or maybe the A, which I call the Thunderdome, they – uh they have the, the enjoyment of competing is, is the biggest part of playing the sport. You know, nobody's, no, no, anybody getting blown out, that's not fun. That's not competing. So, you know, when you, when you take that away and you put teams that can compete against each other on a regular basis, they'll keep coming back.
0: Jason and JJ reflect on their most memorable cool hockey events moments. For me, I mean, if, uh, if you look at our website,
9: my moments there, it's, it's the same that Johnny Rethage, made on Denny Schlegel from the slot, you know, with a one goal game, you know, with under a minute, I think, to go. Um, the 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 play was was, was unbelievable. Uh, and, and the save that, that Johnny made, it, it's still something that sticks out. And it's, it's something that I remember being there up top, standing next to Nikki Beard, you know, with the DJ, getting everything ready. And everybody, everybody in the building, like, just did the ooh. And I didn't see it. I was – like with the DJ working on something, I didn't see it, and thank God Nicky Beard had his phone and had it, you know, recording, and we kind of watched it again. And and that to me is like, it's it's the save that you can show to any hockey player in the world that plays the game, you know, no matter what level, what what ice roll or anything, and they're going to see it and they're going to say, you know, the same thing, just like everybody else. Ooh, like, and it's funny, Chris Leibers kind of jokes about it now. Uh, he actually gave the ball away to Denny in the slot and. And in their little huddle, as Corey had called a timeout or, or, or Fusion called the timeout, you know, Libras tells everybody now, it was the joke, like, oh, don't worry, guys. I'm just going to give the ball to Denny in the slot. And that's exactly what happened. You know, he flubbed an outlet pass or whatever it was right on Denny's tape. Rethage was looking at the corner, like, at you know, at his defenseman, like, and just reacted and got that glove up and made that save. And, and to me, it's it, it shows that our game, you know, if you're a nice hockey player and you never played it and you always kind of talk down on it and you always say it's a kid's game, it shows right there that our game is is full of skill, even if there was a mistake to start that play. Um, and it's, it's the one that sticks out for me over anything else that, that we've ever had uh, is, is that play.
6: For me, Ooh, it's been a couple. Um, I'm going to have to go with Cody Whirlis overtime. Snipe from the right side of the rink. I, uh, I forget what year that was, but it was a uh, a back and forth game the entire game. And then uh, I think it was, I forget who made the pass across the rink to him. And he came up and just, you know, if there's a picture of him where he's actually off his feet when he, when he releases the ball. He, he flexes that stick so much. And then his, of course, his reaction. He goes on a, a sprint. But um, that was probably,
1: probably for me. The women's game experiences a resurrection. Alessandra and Jason reflect on a decade of dominance.
9: Well, the the women's events. Um, again, I, my first event was uh, was 2008. You know, so Jamie had ran the 2017, um, and he did that with some of the women that you know, that were playing the game that he knew. Um, Alessandra Galista, Colleen Siddell, you know, women that were playing in the tournaments, you know, mostly in the men's divisions. Um, There wasn't that many women's events out there. Um, And he asked me to to put on a women's event, and that was the Holiday Bash 2008. Um, You know, and that event was, I believe, it was four or five women's teams, and there was no kind of set area teams. You know, Alessandra Galista is a goaltender from, you know, Massachusetts outside Boston. She was playing with a team out of D.C., You know, um, and another girl from Boston was down there. And then there were some girls from, you know, the Philly area and the Long Island area. But there wasn't really established teams because there was nowhere to travel. So there was a lot of different girls kind of jumping around. Um, You know, as we move forward, uh, all the way up to 2009, you know, when JJ was the head coach of the national team and I was running these events, you know, he asked me to be his assistant coach. And uh, and we kind of saw when we got to the international end you know, where we, we stood. The, the U.S. women's program was always fourth. You know, they were always best of the rest. Um, and, you know, Jay and I talked a lot, you know, that week while we were at Worlds and when we got home, you know, what we wanted to try to do to see in the women's game. And that was really growing it. Um, it had to get out just outside of the small ball hockey areas. Um, you know, you had two different types of women that played. You had the, you know the women who wanted to play the game, and then you had, you know, the – the, the girls who were friends with a bunch of people that played that kind of jumped in and played themselves and, and fell in love with it just as much as anybody else. Um, we started looking, you know, outside of that realm. You know, we started going after ice hockey players. Uh, and what we found is we found that there was a lot of girls playing the game at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. But when they hit the cadet level or freshman level, they started to not play as much. And whether that was, they were only playing with the boys and they didn't want to, you know, Play against the bigger boys, or whether that was because they were playing other sports that were getting them some recognition, you know, in high school and 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 in the college that they had to kind of leave the extracurricular sports. And and ball hockey's always been that extracurricular thing because you can't get any benefit out of it for high school or for college. So we really started pushing to find those girls as they were getting done in college. Uh, and and when I kind of got involved with the the national team uh, after the thirteen tournament. Um, that was my major goal. My only goal was to recruit high-level ice hockey players, whether they played ball hockey or not when they were younger. Because um, the fine women that were already um, taught, you know, they knew how to be coached, they knew a playbook. I thought it would made it easier to bring them in and tweak them around to, to what the ball hockey differences were. Uh, as far as with, with cool hockey events, like we kind of snowballed all, everything that JJ and I did from 09 and really pushed that to – start making the events get bigger. And our long-term goal then was to get enough events so that we could have at least two, if not three, divisions for women. Same thing with the men. Um, you know, you can see how many A teams are out there. Even back in the 80s and 90s, you know, there was plenty of teams playing the game. There was only, you know, 15, 20, A teams, you know, that could compete. Um, and just because, you know, somebody's not talented enough to play in the A level doesn't mean they're not just as big as a fan. And then we found that to be the same thing with the women. When we were first able to get to a B division um, is when it really blew up. You know, we did a split pool the first couple times, um, and, and the girls liked that. And there were some teams that were definitely B and some teams that were definitely A. Um, when we were able to go to, to separate pools, um, one, it allowed some women to play, you know, two divisions, some of those girls that were kind of in the middle. But it also allowed a lot of teams that, that never traveled before to travel. Because they, they said, well, that's great. We don't have to come down and play a team full of USA players and, and get our butts kicked. You know, we can come and play and compete. And uh, now that we're, we're offering a C division as well at the North Americans, um, there's even more teams, teams with older women, teams with women that have been playing for a long time, but just never, you know, got past, you know, up to that talent level that said that, yeah, we would like to try it now. I, I know of one team out of, uh, I think they're out of Winthrop, uh, the Milak rink that, it's split. It's moms and daughters. It's, you know, eight moms and eight daughters on the team. And they were going to come to North Americans this year so that they could play together. A lot of the daughters were like, you know, 14 or 15. A lot of the moms were in their forties, but they finally said like, okay, great. We can play in a division where still might not be able to compete well, but they won't be competing against any A players. Um, And that's kind of how we built the men's and then we kind of modeled that for the women. We're not there as, as big yet, but that is the ultimate goal. One day, You know, we would love to have uh, a women's weekend only for North Americans and have, you know, an A, a B, a C, and a D, Um, you know, and maybe even an over 40 like we do with the men. Um, And that's always been the long-term goal of the women. I just feel it's taken a lot longer than it did with the men because trying to find the girls to get them playing again, you know, from a sport that they usually leave, like I said, in their teens um, has been the, the, the challenge.
2: Now, Jason, um, you know, talk me through, and uh, hopefully, you know, you you can, you know, touch on a little bit of everyone that deserves credit. Um, You know, who are some of the major players, major pioneers um, behind the growth of the the women's sport, whether that's, uh, you know, a house league, a tournament, or the the international level?
9: Well, my experience, um, you know, Jamie Cook, you know, being the first, the biggest, you know, uh, that I know personally, um, you know, with him starting – that team up in 07 and GM in the first women's team. Um, He really put a lot of effort and time into that um, and, and kind of, you know, coming from the men's side of it, like, you know, he allowed probably allowed other people to kind of open up their eyes to, to take the women a little bit more serious as far as players and management and whatnot. um, You know, Alessandra Galista, I I think is, is the number one for players as far as, you know, what she's done both playing and off the the rink uh, for building the game and spreading the word. Uh, I mean, I forget how, I think, I want to say she's been on like a dozen national teams between Masters and, and regular age. Every national team since the start of the program for the, the, the 18, to, you know, 35-year-olds, and she's doing it in her 40s. Um, you know, after her, you know, uh, Mario O'Halloran was the, uh, the first GM after J.B. Cook um, before I came around and kind of how she built the program up. Uh, getting J.J. to coach in, in 09 and, and asking me to come in and, and how she kind of helped spread it around was, was huge. Um, a lot more women got involved, you know, with Mary. Um, Gina Demaro was the, the captain and kind of, I guess, the assistant GM in that time as well. Um, she used to bring a lot of girls out of Long Island that, uh, you know, that didn't really travel and, and, and didn't really know about it. She kind of brought a lot of new people into the travel game.
8: For a while there, you know, it was kind of growing. Um, We were seeing new faces. But the thing is, is that after so many years, we were seeing the same faces, um, which kind of just meant that there wasn't that growth. And so um, in 2015, we actually founded the United Women's Ball Hockey Foundation because of that reason. So we realized, you know, there wasn't really that structure. Um, There really wasn't a community, like there were within our individual teams and maybe like where you lived. Um, But even then, like the game was pretty small. So yeah, in 2015, we decided, you know, let's make a true community. And our basic focus um, in that community, um, building that nonprofit was to start a community, uh, to bring equity to the game and to bring opportunity to the game. So prior to that, there were never um, any women specific tournaments. Um, There may have been in, in Canada, I think there, you know, there were like some, um, but I don't know if it was like just isolated women's tournaments, um, but we wanted to say, you know what, like we want to run a women's tournament and, and, you know, and have that be the focus versus, you know, kind of like an add-on to, you know, a men's tournament or a co-ed tournament. We actually added on co-ed to help um, bring the cost down and things like that to give women more, more of an opportunity. But the main focus was the women's event. And so that was the first time I think, you know, that anyone had ever kind of done it like that. And I think that that was huge. You know, that was really, really beneficial, obviously, um, just to create more opportunities because prior to that, I think there were only two tournaments, two major tournaments a year and maybe a few small ones. But I honestly don't remember, you know, having like the circuit that we have nowadays where, um, especially in the summertime, there's almost like an event every month, right, and so as tournament organizers, we're always trying to make sure we schedule around everyone's event, but we never had that issue before, and I think it's a good thing, right, like, because now there's more opportunities uh, for women to play, um, but one of the big things, too, is, like, the kids and the youth, and so that was another thing that really is hard, because usually as a youth player, and so myself included, I was a goalie, so. I felt a lot probably more protected, I guess, playing against the men because I was in net and I really didn't have to go physically against other players. I had to, you know, physically be in, in good shape, but not like actually, you know, race to the ball or, or, you know, go in a corner with a guy. So I got to play the game a lot longer, I think, because of that, because I was in the net. Um, and so one of the big things is, is when kids turn 16 and then they have to decide, okay, I'm a, a girl, and now I have to play in a men's league in order to continue. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big issue, right? Like, at that point, you know, we're losing a lot of players um, just because who wants to go up against a grown man, right, like at that, <laughs> at that stage? And, and we're all competitive, right? So as a female athlete, I don't want to be um, looked at any less, and I want you to compete really hard against me. Um, but at the same time, like physically, you know, you, you also want to be able to go to school or go to work the next day, right? Like we love this game so much, but to a point, right? So I think that that was a big thing that um, had been missing. So we, even in 2015, it was like, all right, let's try to get all these women to play and like, let's build this community. And it, it was pretty successful. And I think now our focus is the youth. And I know that a lot more girls, you know, are playing in youth ball hockey and things like that, especially with like, I feel like a lot of people in, in areas have really invested in the youth game. And you see it a lot in like Jersey, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, especially like Long Island now. I mean, it's awesome like to see this, this youth game, but then at that point, um, where, what do they transition to? And I think that's something that we're looking at as a community. Um, we tried to add a U16 division to our um, U- UWBHF tournaments. Um, it wasn't huge, like we thought it could be, but we really didn't know how to reach all these girls. Like we're like, okay, all these girls are playing, how do we reach them? So it's like a slow process, but um, just to talk a little bit about USA ball hockey, I think that that's the cool thing that that we're trying to do. So I'm also um, the assistant director of ball hockey at USA ball hockey and with that, we're really trying to figure out like, where are these youth playing? Who are these youth, right? Like, how can we get us all on the same page to then bring more opportunities? Because there are opportunities out there. We have, you know, the U-20 Team USA Division. Um, other countries have U-16 divisions. So eventually, you know, we'll get to that point, but we just need to be all on the same page. And I think that that's a cool thing that USA Ball Hockey is kind of trying to do now. Um, It's a lot bigger project than kind of what um, the UWBHF could handle, like UWBHF is more about community and making sure that there's that, you know, equity, like I said, and opportunity. Um, So we're, that, that group is kind of focused on that, but USA Ball Hockey is really focused on a much broader, you know, scale of ball hockey in the United States, which is what we need. We need to know, like, hey, you know, there are like these pockets. Um, we found out there was a huge, um, pop, a huge group of women playing in Iowa, you know, and like being a player that's played forever and like, you know, <laughs> one of the older players in the game now, I feel like I've met everyone in the game. And then to realize there's this group of, you know, a hundred players in Iowa that no one even knew about, you know, that's so awesome. So I think it's super important to just have that you know, baseline of, Hey, where are these pockets of players? How can we help them? I mean, I've been super fortunate to have awesome coaches and really great opportunities my whole career. Um, and I really want to share that with other players. You know, that's what's kept me in the game for a long time. Um, and I want to be able to coach and, and, you know, just give them those same opportunities that I had. And, and it's out there but I think it's just getting the word out there. And we've always kind of, you know, been, I think, pockets around the U.S. of playing and being super protective and loving of our sport, which is great. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, loving the sport also involves sharing information and and working together. And I feel like we're finally starting to turn the page and seeing that we're really, that's that's more important for the sport, right, is, um, just coming together as a, as a community. So I think, you know, the sport has evolved, the community has evolved. I think the opportunities have definitely grown. Like I've said, you know, going from four teams in a division back in the day, um, I remember playing on three different, three different divisions, just so I could play more um, to now, like, you know, having, you know, three divisions within just the women's um, game, which is awesome. So, it's, it's definitely grown. I'm really excited about the future, um, and where it'll take the women's game. Um, really excited about the youth and opportunities that we can provide to them and keep them in the game. I mean, we've all gained so much, um, from this game and I'd love to see more girls and, um, you know, women really experience that. I mean, there's so many life lessons in sports. I know that, you know, a lot of people talk about that, but literally, you know, I've learned so much through sport. In
0: 2015, the men's world team falls an overtime goal away from a gold medal. George Tarantino, Corey Hirsch, and Bobby Hauser relive this experience.
4: Uh well, you it it again, it starts that uh, we had uh, in my opinion, the greatest coach uh the sport has ever uh at the helm. Good eye for talent. Um, so basically after we were done screaming at each other about the 25th man on the roster, uh, it all came together. Uh, I was very adamant uh, if I was going to do this that the team needed to be a team when it landed, not be a team Wednesday or Thursday as the tournament goes on and, and, and hope it comes together. So camps were a really big deal to me. Uh, we had a camp in Drake at Massachusetts where we, uh, we had a practice, we had a scrimmage, uh, we went to a, uh We all went to dinner together and then we all slept in the rink uh, Casey Cochran let us uh sleep in the rink and It really was a weekend that brought the team together uh and prepared us on the rink like i can 't stress that enough uh so our first game that week was against Slovakia, who was i believe at the time the two ten two time defending champ and uh We played well enough in that game that I – we won the game. It wasn't a perfect game, but we won the game. But I knew right then and there that we were a serious contender. And uh, I had felt satisfied that we did everything we could to prepare for that tournament and that we put our best foot forward. Uh, The end was unfortunate, but it is just – it's so hard to win. It is so freaking hard to win. So, in my opinion, if you have put yourself – in a championship game, and you make it to overtime, um, you really can't do much more than that. Uh, I'll always be frustrated that we lost that game, but never disappointed, you know. It was, it was a good week. It was, um, it was a job well done by a lot of people. Uh, the entire, I called, the, I called our coaching staff, and me and Mike on like an organization, and I thought we did a great job of getting the right team there, getting them prepared. Uh, Corey did a good job of keeping everyone under control with all those pretty European girls around. Uh, Everything, uh, everything was as good as it could be. And we, I think that was the week that really cemented us as a power. Like we were mentioned then with the Czechs, the Slovaks and Canada, like that was the week where it became official. Uh, That's kind of a big deal. You know, Corey, anything you want to add about 2015?
5: Uh, God. Bob, you want to go before me? Bob, you want to thank you for me? Uh, we lost
7: in overtime. <laughs> <No>. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I had fun with it. I thought it was a great tournament. I wasn't really as, as upset as some people were because I knew what we accomplished at the time. And um, mm. yeah, I was just it was one of those cliche things, all four lines were rolling all uh 60 70 were rolling both goalies played great Rathje especially and i just lost in overtime and we had a lot of chances in overtime too so yeah, whatever I, I rewatched that game like maybe a month ago and um just the overtime and uh schlegel had a point-blank chance i had a semi breakaway and ruiz had a chance in the slot and and uh, Haynes or someone else had like a solid chance too. I, I don't remember who it was. And sometimes it just doesn't go in. Hmm. You know, we had, we had, we had, we controlled the play most of the time, most of that game. I felt like even when they came back, I felt like we were all playing really well. And I you not know, sometimes you just lose hockey games.
2: Now, Corey, obviously, you know, no one likes to, you know, relive, you know, losses or anything like that, especially guys have as much success for you, but can you now, obviously, you know, five years removed, look back on it and obviously, you know, take some positives for the fact that, you know, just six years earlier, like I said, we weren't even allowed into the A pool, um, you know, and now, you know, just six years later, you know, you're in overtime playing, you know, basically <coughs> golden goal, sudden death. Um, you know, to win a gold medal and, and put obviously USA Ball Hockey you know, on the map so that now when we go to world tournaments, um, you know, people know that, you know, they have to show up ready to play and USA you know, Ball Hockey players can, can play the game at
5: the highest level. Yeah, no, I, I'm super proud of what was accomplished by the whole, as, you know, George said, as Jorge said, the whole organization. We were lucky to have Bob join us late on that journey too. And so we wouldn't have been anywhere without – the top end scoring, the role players filling in when they needed to fill in, as he said, all four lines rolling. We were the number one penalty kill going into the playoffs. We we're the number one power play going into the playoffs. You name it. We had it all clicking and, um, you know, thought we had it. I, I don't, you know, I, I have no regrets. I mean, there's some, everyone's going to have what ifs if you lost the game and you want to reflect back on it. Of course, there's tons of things I wish we could have done differently late in the stretch and comes off two face off losses too. It's not like we had breakdowns in our defensive zone or gave up odd man rushes. They're, couple bounces we talked about earlier that didn't go our way that led them to, tie, to actually tie the game and then win the game in overtime. When we had well-earned scoring opportunities, as Bob mentioned, I think there were five or six in overtime. So, yeah. you know, I've got no regrets. I just know, as George mentioned earlier, how hard it is to get there, how hard it is to get back there. And to be that close, that's what, hurt. that's what still hurts. But, you know, I'm still proud as hell. I mean, even the '09 team, like that 0 team can leave saying – I don't believe, and I was just thinking about it, I don't think there's another U.S. team that ever beat Canada in junior or men's. I, I think that's the only U.S. team to ever beat Canada as far back as I can remember going back to '05. 5 I don't remember before that. But, I mean, I, I think there, there's pride in both that over Canada. I think there's pride in the silver medal. And now there's just, once again, the push to try to get back there. And, and hopefully that we do.
1: As the women's game continued to grow domestically, Jason Kelly and Alessandra have reviewed the growth on the international scale.
5: Well, again, in 09,
9: when, when JJ asked me to be his assistant coach, you know, when we went there and we we knew we had some talent, you know, we had some really good players. We had Lisa Box, Alessandra, you know, Kelly Hauser. And when we got there and we looked at the Canadians and the Czechs and the slope it was different. It was just a different level of hockey. And we talked a lot when we got home. I mean, a lot. We spent a good six months after we got off the plane, really discussing, you know, what we saw and what we thought, you know, should happen. Um, I was not a part of the team in 2011. Um, and then after the, the 2013, uh, when there became those two you know, organizations, I was asked to get back involved. And the first thing I did was I was called JJ and, and kind of re up that conversation, you know, and, and tell me, listen, I think I really want to do this. You know, I, I know that there, there's going to be two things and it's going to be an issue, but you know, what we talked about when we were there in 09 is something I really wanted to implement. Something that I kind of did a little bit in the background, you know, in 11 or 13, I started trying to meet people. Nobody knew who I was in the ice hockey world. Nobody still knows who I am really in the ice hockey world, but I started to try to meet new players. I started talking to our girls who played and asking them, you know, introduce me to your college, you know, roommates, your college, line mates, whatever. Um, So when we got involved in 13, we spent a lot of time, just cold calling, you know, female athletes that played the game at whatever levels. Um, and we found a lot of girls that, you know, had played a little bit of ball hockey like Erica Lawler, or Julia Bronson, you know, played at uh, Dartmouth. Um, you know, we got her back you know, when she was done school. And that was right after the world 13s. So she was involved and we were getting ready for Switzerland. And she introduced us to uh, Kelly Foley from Dartmouth, who was her line mate and uh, Lindsay, you um, I'm um, drawing a on Lindsay's last name. She was the goalie that we, that we picked up for 15 for Switzerland. Um, and when she came, you know, she was lights out. And it was the first time that we kind of, you know, had somebody that was going to, you know, maybe step into that number one role over Alessandra, you know, or Adele King, the, the two goalies we had before. Um, and it kind of just snowballed, you know, uh, and a lot of that came from like up in your area, Scott, the, the Boston sport and social league. It's so an outdoor league kind of on a tennis court space. Like, very low key. Um, you know, in New York City, same thing. They have something down in Chinatown on a tennis court and it's really low key stuff. But in those major areas, you know, uh, Boston being a major college hockey area and New York being a major financial area, you start to see a lot of women who left college and when they were done, who were in these two areas that still kind of wanted to play, but they wanted to have fun. They didn't want 1030 ice hockey slots. And they just found somebody or found the leagues or whatever. And they moved into these, ball hockey leagues. And that's where Sarah Wilson and Karen Levin came from. And Cherie Stewart, who was uh, from California and moved to New York. The first hockey she found was ball hockey and she jumped out there and played it. And you know, next thing you know, she's making a national team. Um, and the, the growth of what we did with, with recruiting uh, was really there. I think the final piece was when uh, we landed Gwen Lemieux for our head coach uh, for, for 2017. And, um, she came from Canada. She was the, a coach for Canada for a while. She was the GM for Canada in 13. Uh, and for whatever reason, she was no longer the GM there. Uh, and she came back to coach again because she coached the national team in 2007 for USA under Jamie Cook. So some of the girls were still involved. And, and when she came in, the systems that she brought um, and the recruiting that we did with ice hockey players, I think became a, kind of that, that mesh. Um, and that's what I'd always wanted, you know, someone who – had studied for a long time, knew how to be coached, knew how to listen and could look at, you know, that, that system, that playbook, even if they didn't run that particular one, they could pick it up pretty easy because, you know, they've done that type of stuff before. Uh, And when we went, you know, in 17, it it was, it was there. You could see the talent, you could see everything. Uh, But there was one instance for me where I knew that we were going to medal. I knew that we were going to do better than we ever did before. And and it was after um, a game. Uh, and I I don't remember what game it was for some reason, but it was after a game we had just won, I was in the press booth, and I came back toward the locker rooms, and all the girls were in the tunnel, supposedly supposed to do their their post game stretch. Well, instead they were dancing around to uh, Whitney Houston's "I Want to Dance with Somebody," and I just kind of watched, and I remember videotaping it, you know, and and I remember saying to myself like, "This is it, we're gonna win, you know, like we're gonna we're we're gonna medal, we're gonna get there." And that was because it was the first time that all twenty some out of our girls were together every time we had gone before every event that we saw before there was a group from boston there was a group from here there was a group from there like and they had their groups and they hung out together and they didn't mesh you know like they were family you know but they meshed they were teammates they hung out but they didn't mesh like they were family this was that minute and i think that that came from all the preparedness that we did and uh after 17 was over we got even a huge huge amount more of players that were coming out of the woodwork I had 15 girls that played in the, in the NWHL that all expressed interest in trying out for the 19 team, and I think that is 15, I think nine did, and I think seven went. Um, and even after 19, you know, same thing. You know, each girl that played in the NWHL told me that she had three other girls from her team that were interested. And I'm thinking now, you know, for Angela Toronto, the new GM, he's got a shot at, at 25, 30, even more professional women's ice hockey players that are going to, going to come out this time to try out for the next team. And I think that's just, you know, exactly where the program needed to be.
1: With the Eastern Seaboard maintaining a foothold on the sport, Chris Banks from USA Ball Hockey talks about the unification from coast to coast.
10: Primarily, the sport has, has been just what you talked about, is, um, you know, in, in terms of any sort of organization, and that has been in primarily in the Northeast. In the 90s, there was a little bit happening in Detroit and Chicago, um, but it's just been in Southern Ontario and, and the Northeast, uh, uh, basically, where teams would travel and play against each other. So now with, with respect to those, um, to, to all of those leagues and all those players and all those organizers and whatnot, they were limited to just the Northeast. They didn't do anything. They never really worked outside outside but what we had come to find out over the past several years here is that there are many, many leagues throughout the United States. They're not quite as organized as there are in the Northeast, because as you, if, and I'll give you an example of that. So there's a, there's a, a, a spot in South Dakota and um, it's a small league, about 300 players. They've been around for 20 years. Um, but, and it's just adult players. They've, they've never had anybody pushing them. So, and an example of that would be um w- when i started on the tournament scene 20 years ago we didn't know anything outside of buffalo so when we went to our first tournament in detroit we saw all these teams these big giant players and that raised the bar a little bit and then we started moving eastward you know toward uh, toward uh, the atlantic ocean and we started finding all these other teams and and that raised the bar and then then somebody got nice uniforms and then the next guy got nice uniforms and the next thing you know this sport started to look like something, right? So, you know, you take this place out in South Dakota, they've been doing great, but they've never had anybody raise the bar on them at all. Um, so we've we've found places like that all over the country. And if you look hard enough, you can find them. Um, and so, you know, it, it's always been our vision. It, it, it has been, it's been our vision and it's been the, primary function or one of the primary functions of what we're doing uh, because, and I, I'll just go off on the side here a little bit. A lot of people think that this is about national teams and, and like, we love our national teams. We're very proud of them, but this is so much bigger. And so, you know, we, we spend so much more time on developing in the United States than we do in our national teams. At this point, the national teams take care of themselves. We don't, there's not, there's not a lot of marketing that's gonna go involved. We've got processes, fine. We'll see you every couple of years. What we're really concerned about is getting more kids playing hockey and getting the sport organized, which is something that we've never ever had before um, because even as organized as the Northeast may be, you can still go from rink to rink to rink and find different rules all, all the time. And, and, and if you're a tournament team coming from out of town, you got to adjust to those new rules because that's not what you're used to playing. So, um, um so the answer, and that was a long way around it, but the answer is, there is, there, there is a lot of leagues all over the United States. they're, they're everywhere. I mean they're almost in every major city that you could find you know part of the challenge has been finding them. but a, a lot of them have come to us which is which is great. Um, I can give you some I mean some examples of those are a um, uh, Harry Sy, which is a, a player, a Pittsburgh guy that is, I played against him back in the day and we're around the same age. He's got uh, a spot down in Texas, and 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 they're they're rolling along in Texas. And, and our first um, our first newsletter from a few months back had a whole article about it, brilliantly done, and had a whole article about about Texas. There's um, a one of our former um, USA um, women's players, uh, uh, Beth Marhefka, She's uh, getting going out in uh, out in Southern California. Um, Anthony San Rocco was another guy that is a Jersey. Jersey guy, player, young guy, entrepreneurial, really loves the sport. He's starting the uh, the uh, National Ball Hockey League, and now he's just moved to Seattle. So he's opening doors up in the in the in the uh, upper northwest. Um, so yeah, I mean there, there there are a lot of places that are. Um, Chicago's got a contingency. Uh, Tampa's got a contingency. Um, Orlando is on the verge of a contingency. There's stuff down in the, uh, uh, down or. Did I did I say Atlanta or Orlando? One of the two, but actually both of them. <laughs> both of them. There's, there's contingencies everywhere. So ultimately what we've tried to do and what we're um, succeeding at thus far anyway is getting that common set of rules for everybody to play under. Through
0: this five-part series, we've seen the growth of the game from its infancy into the modern era. Chris Banks outlines the vision of the
10: future. So in 2021, it's going to be more of a... Get all the leagues signed up that we need that, that want to be part of this and and, and, and whatnot. Um, get good at that process. Uh, get good at the at, at at all the elements that are involved in that. And then uh, beyond that, um, we're 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 expecting probably someplace between 15 and 20 thousand registrants in 2021. Uh, we'd like to be able to in year two move up 25 uh, percent every year um if, if possible um we we think we can do it based on you know what we know and who we know around the country um we would like to um our, our little longer term plan um uh is to um get enough uh card carrying members and registrants to be able to uh, uh, approach the usoc uh the olympic committee and what that would do for us um it would help uh, legitimize our sport even further. There's, there's a lot of qualifications that have to happen before we are even able to walk into that, into that door or even knock on that door for that matter. But uh, uh, we'd like to be able to get in position and and what that would require is, is, you know, it's five years of being a nonprofit. We're already a few years, a couple of few years into that. We are, uh, you know, uh, registrants, um, all the things that we're doing. Um, our, our our insurance is world class insurance. It's the same insurance you get at USA Ball at USA Hockey. Um, uh, all of our coaching certifications and whatnot, our coached coach and referee certifications, those are finished. Those are in the U.S. Copyright Office right now, um, uh, pending pending uh, the acceptance on those. Um, so and 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 we've modeled ourselves after USA Lacrosse, USA Hockey, um, USA Soccer and to, to do the things that they're going to do. Because if we're gonna bother knocking on the USOC's door, we have to have those parts in place. Um, what, and what that will ultimately do for us is um, uh, being a member of the USOC will, um, will bring more kids playing the game. It's even further legitimacy. So we could dial up a grow the game day in any city in the country. And we would uh, get support from the local NHL teams there. We would get support from um, from any local, uh, you know, ice hockey and 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 sport establishments. Um, that's that's uh, that's really exciting, um, and and we we believe that we're gonna we're gonna hit that goal. Um, there's one other um, thing that um, I do want to mention, and of uh, what's gonna help us get that goal is a partnership with a company called Empower Play Project. Uh, they're based out of uh, Beverly Hills, California. Um, they're a group both on the East and West coast, and we've, uh, uh, gained a partnership with them after a few months of, uh, getting down to the nitty gritty with contracts and whatnot. But what this company does is, well, I won't give you the the boring version. If you're a person in the United States and you've played ball hockey in your life and you love it, and you've always wanted to open your own rink and, and, and would always love to just be that rink owner. Um, uh, this is the company that's going to help you do that.
1: Thank you for all the contributors who were tirelessly to bring the past to the forefront. But as we conclude, we have an additional experience to bring. Scott, can you provide a sneak preview? We're going to bring you the 50 greatest players our sport has ever seen,
2: chosen by the peers that saw them play. The players, the team organizers, the event organizers. They're going to come on and talk about these guys, give you a little insight on you know, the type of player they were and some of the memorable moments they had. So they'll be releasing uh, in a few weeks here, and we'll release them four, five, six players at a time in, in weekly episodes. So let the debate begin.